The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, I want us to go to Mark, the 14th chapter. We want to pick up reading in verse 41. I want you to notice where we are. We've crossed the Kidron with Jesus. That murky, bloody stream that carried the blood of the sacrifices into the valley of the Kidron. We have gone with him into the garden. We've seen him suffering, not not the burden of sin yet, but the looming burden that he sees coming. His father and he have marched up to the very pit and looked over the brink and they've seen, he has seen what's coming. He feels what's coming. He has agonized. He has been very heavy. He has been sore amazed. He has prayed, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, Father, all things are possible. If it's possible, let this cup be taken away from me. I don't believe there he's trying to get out of his duty. He's just praying, Lord, do what you promised and bring me through it and bring me out of it. And he's seen his disciples who are his closest companions on earth as they can't stay awake. He says, watch and pray, and yet they fall asleep. He goes and prays and he, he, he finally comes to the point in verse 41, after three times, he comes back to them and he says to them, sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. We are on the brink of Calvary. Now, I want to go ahead and give you a disclaimer as we approach Golgotha, as we mount its dreaded hillside, as we see the Savior nailed to the cross, I will never be able to preach it to you in the way it ought to be preached. I'll never be able to paint the picture for you that ought to be painted. In fact, I think God knew that. He turned the lights off at one point when He's on the cross. He did not expect us to make artwork out of His Son. He did not expect us to make a spectacle out of Jesus. But he, did, he does expect us as we approach this dreaded day to understand the gravity of it and to understand the depth of His suffering and the pain that He is experiencing and to remind ourselves that the reason he is doing that is not the Romans and not the Jews and not the chief priests and not the Pharisees, but it is you and I that are the reason he's here. Jesus is not a tragic figure of history. Jesus is not some poor prophet who got uh, tripped up by his own teaching and, and made the wrong decisions and, and got caught. Because we're going to read right here. He said, the hour is come. You remember, there were many times when the hour had not come. Right. There were crowds, that, there were multitudes that 
thronged him and tried to take him away. The Pharisees in his very first message wanted to cast him headlong from the cliff, but he passed through the midst of them and got away. You know why? Because the hour was not yet come. But you know what? Now the hour has come. We have a lot of hours in our lives that we dread, don't we? When I was a little kid, I hated nothing more than getting a shot. I knew I dreaded my mother. It was so bad that my mother used to lie to me. I'm sorry, mama, but that's what it was. She used to lie to me about, oh, we're going. She'd give me books. She'd give me something new and say, oh, we're going to Tuscaloosa. Where do we now, Eventually, I figured that one out. I was like, wait a minute. Sums up. One day, our, 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 the, my pediatrician had moved from one office to the other. And so, I, you know, I always knew where the turns were. And I got, I was, you know, four, five, six years old. And finally, I was sitting there in that office and reading these neat little books. And then suddenly the nurse came to the door and said, James McCool. And I started crying. It was horrible. It was just, <laughs> but I knew then I'd been had, you know. <laughs> that was my big hour then but as I got older those hours have gotten darker yeah. um, January 1st 2020 was a dark hour a dark hour and I've been to the bedside of enough of my loved ones who passed to know to sense rather when that hour is coming and it's a dark I remember when Sherry's grandmother uh, was in her deathbed and we were, we went to the we were called to come to the hospital. It's been several years ago. And, um, and, and I looked at Sherry, and I don't know if she remembers this. I said, here we go again. I just dread it, you know, a dark hour. But, beloved, you think about the darkest hour of your life. You've never had a dark hour like this hour. You've never had an hour that's as horrible, that's as torturous, that's as painful, that's as, that causes so much despair as this hour was for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, even in your darkest hour, even in my darkest hour, I was never apart from God, never apart from Jesus, never apart from the Holy Spirit. Might not have felt Him, might not have been able to see Him or touch Him or maybe even thought He'd abandoned me, but He hadn't. That Jesus is approaching Golgotha, where, he's on, where he will cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mm. And once again, he's not doing it because he got caught. Because look at what he says here. He says, The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And notice the next step for me would be run and hide. Run and flee. Go somewhere. Try to get away. But that's not Jesus. Notice what happened as he's taken in the garden. Rise up. Let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. He was eager to go. He was intentional in his actions. You remember back in chapter 10 when, uh, you don't have to turn there, but basically Jesus was finally on the road back up to uh, headed to Jerusalem, and uh, and it, it told us back in chapter ten that uh, uh, that he went before them, and they were amazed. Yeah. You know, he'd been walking with them, he'd been in the midst of them, but as he begins to go to Jerusalem, as he 
begins to approach this hour. This was his last trip to Jerusalem or to the Jerusalem area. And he was going up there. He went ahead of them. He was going forward. Back over in Isaiah chapter 50. And I want you to read this, listen to this verse here. Isaiah chapter 50. We know this is a messianic psalm because of what goes on in verse 6. Verse 6 says that... Uh, uh, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that pluck off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. That is a messianic reference. But notice in verse 7, he says, "For This is why he did it. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Jesus was not confounded on this night. Jesus was not tricked and betrayed in the sense of, he was betrayed, but not in the sense of, Oh my, I'm surprised and I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed. He certainly was disappointed, no doubt, but he would disappointed in the sense of it took him by, by surprise. It says, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Beloved, he has now set his face like a flint toward Calvary. He is marching. He, he's been on the path his whole life, but now the hour is come and he is, he is not hesitating. There is urgency in his actions. He says, let us go. Let us go. That's one Greek word translates into those three words there. Let us go. And it means to lead by laying a hold of, to lead by going with oneself or to conduct them. He's leading them. They're not leading him. He's leading them. Rise up. Let us go. He was eager. He was a volunteer. And then we see he was betrayed by kiss. He was betrayed by kiss. Verse 43, immediately, while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve. And with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that, that same is he. Take him and lead him safely, away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. I want you to notice that it was one of his closest companions that betrayed him. The psalmist in Psalm 41 and verse 9 said, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. You know, I went through my Bible not too long ago, the, the Gospels, I just finished up reading through them, and I took, a, I took a blue marker, a light blue marker, and everywhere there was a scripture fulfilled, I marked it. And my Bible and the, the Gospels are so full of those those fulfilled prophecies. Here's another one. Mine own familiar friend has lifted up his heel against me. You know, being close in proximity to Jesus doesn't mean somebody loves Jesus. You keep that in mind. There's a lot of preachers. <laughs> There's a lot of faithful to attend church members. Now, I'm not talking about in our church. I'm talking about in the world out there. There are those that, uh, you know, some of the cult leaders are the most avid and able to quote scripture and to, and to, um, to be there. All, in fact, most of the cults uh, ultimately promote not just some kind of church attendance, but moving in together, you know, and being there, being 
being close to the Bible, being close to the place where Jesus is doesn't necessarily mean that somebody loves Jesus. Notice that Judas, as I've told you, I believe was not a child of God. We won't go back through that again as to why I believe that. But I want you to also think about Peter. Peter was. Peter was, in some ways, you might say the closest to Jesus. And he betrayed him too. Notice what, I say that to you young folks. Just don't be fooled by those who seem to be closest to Jesus in their speech. Don't listen to their talk. Watch their actions. Don't, don't pay attention to how smart they are. Make sure that they're basing their, uh, their statements and their positions on the word of God. Notice what Judas does. By the way, well, I'll come back to this, but let me just say this to you. <clears throat> Do you think Jesus can empathize with you when your friend betrays you? I believe he can. This was one of the 12. This was one of the 12. Now, I know Jesus knew. I know he knew who he was. He never had any doubt about who he was. But even Peter betrays him. Even Peter flees. I believe Jesus is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. Now notice, it's interesting, is it not, that Judas chose to betray Jesus through one of the most intimate acts of friendship and love. He could have pointed at him. He could have went over and put his arm around him or slapped him on the back. But Judas chose a kiss. Judas chose a kiss. And that word kiss there, it says he went up and kissed him in verse 45. That Greek word implies more than just a peck on the cheek. That was, it was a tender kiss. It, was, it literally means to kiss again and again. It was, a, it was a false display of love. It was a false display of, uh, of affection. And, and, and <laughs> let me just say again to you young folks, but it can happen to you older folks too. It can happen to all of us. Uh, how many people have been betrayed by a kiss? <laughs> How many times is some, someone, just because someone will kiss you, just because someone will uh, act like they're close to you, does not mean that they're necessarily leading you in the right path. Judas chose a kiss. He chose a kiss. And then he was arrested like a thief. How degrading is that? He was arrested... Like a thief. Look at verse 46. He, they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword, smote the servant of the high priest, cut off his head. And then Jesus answered and said unto them, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? They're treating him like a common criminal. And notice in verse 46, don't miss this. Don't miss. They laid their hands on him. Don't miss this. Here stands the Lord of glory. Here stands the Son of God who created this world, who created this universe, and they laid their hands on Him. They laid their hands on Him. In John, the 18th chapter, we read a little bit more about what happened before they ever touched Him. In John chapter 18 and verse 4, notice what happens. It says, uh, Verse 3, Judah, Judas, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. It says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? 
You know, I've told you before, when Jesus asks a question, he's not trying to find out information. He's trying to impart a lesson usually. And that's what's fixing to happen right here. One of the greatest lessons they should have heeded. Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto, unto them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was with him. And look at verse 6. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. <laughs> they went backward and fell to the ground. You know, this is the Son of God we're speaking about. What a clear display of his awesome power. What a clear message to us that he could have gotten away had he wanted to. All he had to do was speak the word. He said, I am he that literally, that you notice that word he is in italics. That means they added it for context and, and clarity. But that means literally he looked at them and said, I am. I am. The Greek phrase, ego, I am. I am. Those Jews would have, they would have known what he was talking about. Their God is the great I am. Jehovah God is the great I am. When Moses said, uh, who do I need to tell them is, is sending me? He said, you tell them that I am sent you. Jesus is telling them clearly with no equivocation, with no uh, covering it up. I am the God of the universe. And by the way, when he said it, they fell down. He didn't have to have a sword drawn to cut off anybody's ear. He didn't have to have an army to protect him. He said, I am, and they fell back. All he had to do is walk right through them, and he could have gotten away. What a display of his awesome power, and what a display of his awesome love. <laughs> because he didn't get away. He asked them again, whom seek you? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, that's the point. If I'm in that crowd, I would be saying, guys, we might need to be rethinking this, you know. This is not just any ordinary prisoner. But they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I've told you that I'm he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Man, what an what a awesome summary of his whole purpose in being here. If you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Mm. Old Brother Oliver Junkin, he loved that verse. <laughs> of them that he gave me, I've lost none. <laughs> he quoted that to me many times. They laid their hands on the Son of God, the Lord of glory. And Jesus points out their folly and their their confusion even. He said, are you come out as a thief, as against a thief, with swords and staves to take me? He said in verse 49, I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you took me not. But you know, there's a reason that this occurred. He said, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. The scriptures must be fulfilled. I'll come back to that in a minute, but notice how they treated the Lord of glory like a common and this this is the one who says I am the way the truth and the life he's not a thief he says I'm the door of the sheep all that come otherwise and climb up over the fence and come in another way they're thieves and robbers but not me you know I, I was thinking about what brother Josh Coker preached on at Tim's church uh, a few weeks ago about living in Babylon, Brother Mackey. And, and Babylon comes from the root word Babel, where we read about the Tower, Tower of Babel. That was the founding of the nation of Babylon over there. The word Babel means confusion. 
The word Babel means confusion. What we have here is we have a people that is so confused in their thinking that they think the way, the truth, and the life is nothing but a thief and a robber. They think that the door of the sheep, the man who said he's not just the one who goes in and out the door, he is the door of the sheep, that he is the one that's a thief and a robber climbing over the hedge to get in. Jesus treated as a common thief. You know, this is where if, if you're his friend, you should speak up. This is the place where you should stand up and say, no, wait a minute, you're, you got this all wrong. This is my friend. We're going to stand with him. And in fact, Peter did. We see where Peter pulled out a sword. He just stood up in the wrong way. He stood up, but he stood up in the wrong way. He pulled a sword. He thought it was time to fight. And he ended up fleeing. He thought it was time to start the rebellion when Jesus was about to finish the war. He didn't understand what, you know, if I'm his companion and I understand, then I'm going to be there with him the whole way. It won't do any good for you or for, even for me in the way of putting away sins, but it's the duty that I have. I should have been with it. But notice what happened. Notice what happened. It says that they all forsook him and fled. And even it says there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body and the young men laid hold on him and he left the linen cloth and fled from him naked. Some suppose that this was Mark. I don't know whether it was Mark or not. But I know it's in there for a reason. And I believe it just points out to us, Brother Mackey, just how shameful we can become even as his followers. You know, in the Bible, nakedness is always a symbol of shame. And here's one, they all fled and one even fled naked. One even fled naked. Oh, that's where we are. Notice the disciples all ran away. As I said earlier, you, you ever been betrayed by somebody? I have. I've, been, I've, I've, I've had people that I thought were my, my good friends and found out that they were just, they were just putting on a front. And, and it was a terrible feeling to feel betrayed. But beloved if you know the pain of someone close to you using you or abusing you or doing, turning their back on you, rest assured the Lord Jesus Christ understands that feeling because he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And here is a place where he shows us how he was touched by the feeling of betrayal. Maybe you've been betrayed by the very one, the only one, the main one that should have been faithful to you. But, but let, me, let me just suggest to you that you take it to Jesus. Go to him because he won't, he won't tell you to suck it up and to get over it. He won't, he won't do that. He'll hold you up in his arms and comfort you because he's felt the same thing. He was abandoned by all. And notice that they all turned away, but Jesus never turned away. You know, I told you the scriptures have to be fulfilled. Back over in Isaiah chapter 53. I want you to listen to this. Isaiah chapter 53. We'll begin reading in verse uh, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. We're going to see that he didn't receive a just and fair trial. He didn't receive justice or judgment. He was taken from prison. He was taken from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? 
for he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken, not for his own transgression. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Jesus Christ didn't turn away. Of all the ones there that day, Jesus was the only one who had the right to turn away. He was the one who had the power to turn away. He said, I am, and they fell away from him. He, he was the spotless lamb of God. There was no sin, no guile, no deceit found in his mouth. He was, there was no reason, no earthly reason for him to be taken away into judgment. And yet, it was all the others that turned away, but not Jesus. He was taken in the garden. And then he was taken to the authorities. Notice in verse 53, it says, They led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And verse 54 tells us that Peter at least followed him, although he followed him afar off, even into the palace of the high priest and sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death and found none. Notice where they took him. They took him to the highest religious authorities in the land, indeed in the world, because there was no other place where God had put his stamp of approval than right here on, on, in Jerusalem, in Israel, in Jerusalem, on the, in the Sanhedrin, in the council of the elders, the chief priests and the elders. The highest religious authorities in the land. You know, that's the place you think you'd want to go. I'd want to go to some preacher. I'd want to go to some priest as opposed to some impartial, neutral, cold, detached magistrate. Wouldn't you? I would want to go to the place where, I felt, where they're charged with doing justice. You know, the high priest, it wasn't just the high priest, by the way. It was the elders and the chief priests. It was all these. And I noticed um, over in the book of Hebrews, the fifth chapter, we get a little summary of what the high priest was supposed to do. And, and by, by extension, all those priests under him. Uh, we're told in Hebrews 5 and verse 1, the writer here says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. You see, that's the job of the chief priest. That's the job of the preacher. You know, some preachers think it's their job to, to be the Judge, jury, and executioner. <laughs> you know, their job is to look out over the congregation and pick out the sins that they know about and try to find out the sins that they don't know about so they can drag them down. You know, I even know preachers, Brother Buddy and I know uh, of, a, of a, one or two preachers that, that it seems like their, their goal is to get as much goods on the congregation as they can in order to kind of cement their their authority because the congregation members are afraid they're going to they're going to go out and tell it you know well that's that's not much of a preacher is it that's not much of a priest you know there is a point 
where the church has to take a stand against immorality. There are times, unfortunately, we've experienced that in this church where we've had to make a decision to remove fellowship from a member. I've seen preachers that seem like they just gloat over those opportunities. I've heard of places and churches that just live to exclude people. Let me tell you something, beloved. I'm so thankful for you. We have yet to deal with a situation like that where where everyone in the congregation has not been touched, their heart has not been tender with compassion toward that one that has slipped and fallen. Beloved, that's the job of the priest. That's the job of the leader. And it's your job as a congregation member because guess what? You're a leader. If you've stepped out and, and made that commitment to the church by following the Lord in New Testament baptism, you're a leader. We don't have a bunch of, you know, we don't have one leader and a bunch of followers. We have, we do have one leader. I'm talking about earthly wise. We have one leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then a bunch of us followers. But we're all supposed to be leading in our example. This high priest is supposed to be one who can have compassion. But, but you notice the way that, the way he's able to maintain that compassion is remembering that he also is compassed with infirmity. You know, I think that's one reason that, that you as a congregation, that we as a church have, have been blessed is because I believe we've all tried to keep in mind that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. You know, um, <laughs> there's, no, there's no big eyes and little U's in this church. There shouldn't be. There's no high hills that lord it over the low valleys. In the kingdom of God, we're told that the high hills are cast down and the low valleys are brought up. Everybody's leveled at the foot of the cross. Everybody's leveled. But these religious leaders forgot that. They forgot about compassion. They forgot about themselves being compassed with infirmities. They were there for the purpose, the sole purpose of figuring out a way to justify putting Jesus to death. And they conducted an illegal trial. And I'm not going to go into all the details of that this morning. Maybe sometime I'll preach about it. But they conducted an illegal trial. It says, first of all, in verse 56, many bear false witness against him. <laughs> they, they got false witnesses to come together. There are various reasons that this trial was illegal. One thing is, if you continue reading, like over in the book of Luke, I believe it is, uh, when he gives the account, it says Jesus speaks to the chief priests and scribes that are in the crowd. How would you like it if you came, if, if the police came to arrest you and the judge was with them? <laughs> the judge that was going to decide your fate was with the police in that crowd, helping put the handcuffs on you. You'd feel kind of Kind of funny about going before that judge, wouldn't you? You'd feel like you weren't going to get a fair shake. Well, beloved, that's exactly what's happening with Jesus. There were some chief priests. There were some, uh, cry, uh, some that were going to be judges in the mob that night. Plus, it was also held at night. And they weren't supposed to hold a trial in the Sanhedrin at night. But primarily, the problem with the, with the, whole, uh, the whole proceedings had to do with the fact that these were false witnesses. It says there arose certain, verse 56, many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands 
And within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. Now I want to point out something to you. This is truly false testimony because Jesus never said that. Jesus never said that. If they said, he said, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands. Earlier in Mark, you heard him say, there won't be one stone left that won't be cast down. But he didn't say he was going to do that. But I want you to notice over in John chapter 2 and verse 19, verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, what sign showest unto us? Thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things. He, he'd been, he'd driven them, he'd just driven the, the money changers out. He had, he had been, he had been uh, preaching things to them that they didn't, uh, they didn't believe. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You notice what they added to the testimony? You know, a witness can do such damage by adding to the testimony. And the witnesses that came said, he said, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands. He never said that he was going to destroy the temple made with hands. He said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. He's talking about the temple of his body. Notice he goes on to say, the Jews said, 46 years with this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. He never said that that they accused him of saying. The chief priests, the chief priests conducted an illegal trial. Ultimately, you know, when I, when I was a prosecutor and I would go to court, I had to file an indictment. We had to go to the grand jury and get an indictment. And we had to set out the charges, you know, that so-and-so committed assault in the first degree by striking the victim with a hammer. Okay. And when we got the indictment, Brother Mackey, and we went to trial before the jury, you couldn't, I couldn't go in there and say, oh, well, you know, based on what I hear now in the evidence, uh, uh, what I really want to prove to you is that he robbed a bank. <laughs> you know, I know I said he assaulted, but here the evidence is he robbed the bank, so we're going to change the charge. You can't do that. You can't, it's illegal to do that. Notice that they brought all these false charges about what he was saying about the temple, but then the high priest stood up in the midst in verse 60 and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it these, which these witnesses, uh, what is it which these witness against thee? But he held his priest, his peace, and answered nothing. And then he asked him this question. He said, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. They brought him in to prosecute him for saying he was going to tear the temple down. And they end up changing the charges because the high priest rent his clothes and said, what need have we of any further witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Right here before the chief priests, before the scribes, before the elders, before the, the Sanhedrin court there that was the highest justice you could hope for in the nation of Israel. And they not only tried him at night illegally, they not only got, see they were out to get him for false witness. They got these false witnesses together. They changed the charges. <laughs> And they decided to condemn him to death. 
And then look at what happens in verse 65. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Right there in the dead of night under cover of darkness, treating him like a thief, they took the Lord of glory. They took the Son of God. They illegally condemned him to death and they began to carry out the sentence in a torturous way. This wouldn't stand today. This wouldn't stand today. There'd be outrage, there'd be riots, there'd be protests. Today, people make up stuff like this so that they can go out and protest. Nobody, nobody's protesting what they did to Jesus, are they? No. Nobody's upset about that today. I tell you, beloved, I don't want to see any person treated wrongfully, but, but what they did to the Son of God is we're going to continue... In a, in a further message. They take him to the chief magistrates. They've taken him before the chief priests. They're going to take him to the chief magistrates. And before they even get to the chief magistrate, the, the, the nation of Israel couldn't condemn anybody to death. They didn't have the legal authority to put him to death. The only way they could get the death penalty legally imposed is to take him to Pilate, take him to the Roman authorities or to Herod in the northern part of Israel maybe. Wherever they were going to take him, they had, to, they had to get the sanction of the Roman authorities, and yet they're already spitting on him, covering his face, buffeting him. They're telling him, prophesy to us who it is that hits you. Prophesy. If you're, that, if you're so smart, if you're uh, the son of God, if you know everything, tell me who it is. They're mocking him, and they're striking him. We're not going to go any further this morning into this trial of Jesus. Maybe tonight we'll, we'll wrap it up. But I want you to think about something. Notice Jesus' demeanor throughout this whole process. Is there any point where he starts crying out, crying foul, saying, y'all are wrong. Somebody help me. Somebody save me. Is there any point where he says, guys, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I was wrong. I, you know, there's a point that they start, there's a, we're going to read about him plucking out his beard. Now, I've, I've had that, <laughs> I've had hair plucked out before, okay? I've talked about that. My, that's why I've got gray eyebrows. My family would like to take get rid of those but the uh, most I'll ever do is color them maybe but I'm not going to have them plucked out because it hurts it hurts it's horrible it's an can you imagine I, I used to have a beard and when I was reading this one time I just I just said I wonder how bad that would feel and I, I didn't go that far as to pluck it I couldn't stand it just just pulling on pulling on my beard he has his beard plucked out he has his he has his head Scarred with a crown of thorns. And it's not just little stickers. It's not little briars. It's thorns, long, jabbing, hurtful thorns. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. I've had, I've had somebody refuse to shake my hand. And for men, 
You know what I'm talking about. That's a, that's a big deal. You don't forget that. But I've never had anybody spit on me, Brother James. That's, that's the worst thing I can think of. That's, it's bad enough for somebody not to shake my hand, but, but I'll tell you, to have somebody spit in your face, can you even fathom someone spitting in your face and you not reacting? You not lashing out? Can you imagine? And Jesus, they spit upon Him multiple times and He just took it. He just took it. Never flustered. Never fearful. Never ready to turn back. He knew what was coming. I just want to leave you with one little hopeful thought and then we'll, we'll continue this line of preaching, as I said, maybe not. Over in the fourth chapter of Acts, things are looking pretty dire, aren't they? You got the chief priests, the highest religious authorities. We're about to see him go before the chief magistrates, the highest civil authorities. We're going to see him condemned to death. We're going to, the full might of the Roman Empire will be brought to bear on the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's preaching in the fourth chapter of Acts, and he says this in verse 26 The kings of the earth stood up. The rulers were gathered together against the, Lord against the Lord and against His Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. It's looking pretty hopeless for the Lord, isn't it? It's looking like a time where this tragic figure, Jesus, is about to meet His doom. It's, it's about as bad as it could get I've never had this many authorities lined up against me. I've had some enemies. I've had some people against me. But imagine if the president and the Congress and the Supreme Court were all lined up against you, not just in general, but you personally. They had you in their target. They had you in their crosshairs. They were ready to destroy you. That would be a very intimidating and a pretty much hopeless situation to be in. Against this holy child, the people, Pontius Pilate, Herod, the people of Israel were gathered together. But notice, I want to leave you with a little hope this morning. Notice verse 28. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determine before to be done. I just want you to know as we bring this to a close this morning, and I know you know this, this isn't a hopeless situation. Things didn't get out of control that day for Jesus. It looks like it. The disciples thought it. They felt like that there's two disciples going to talk about it on a road to Emmaus about how the one they once thought was the Son of God now in their minds just a prophet. And he's a tragic figure. But they're there to do whatsoever thy hand purposed beforehand to do. The Lord Jesus Christ is enduring this. For you, beloved. We're going to see that it's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. I want to focus over the, the next two or three sermons on what he's going to experience on the cross. And I want you to keep in mind, beloved, he's doing it all for you. Why should I gain from his reward? Why should I gain from his sufferings? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. 
His wounds have paid my ransom. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.